Good morning. How's everybody doing? Let's uh, let, let my family, who are the stragglers, come and sit down and then we'll get going. Thank you in advance, too. Nick is in the middle aisle for me today. He's not against the wall. That's impressive. It's going to be good. It saves my neck from having to go left to right. Before I forget, next week, Sunday school, will be a presentation and update from our missionaries in Italy with the kings. So I want to make note of that before I forget to remind you of next week. So, Well, good morning and greetings. I just want to dive right in. <clears throat> so I'm glad that we've continued. You know, originally we had planned to simply just focus our teaching um, and, of course, that's been done by committee. Thank you to others that have participated. We were going to just focus on First John, but I'm glad that we continued with these other admittedly somewhat overlooked epistles. So um, let's turn the page one more time from Second John now to Third John, and that'll be where we're at this morning. <clears throat> and there are a lot of parallels between the two. Most importantly, with the theme of walking in truth, along with, of course, with John's penmanship. He's always going to interject obedience and love. So the same theme, but also the same structure, and that being very short and similar greetings, similar closings. So the two small epistles, 2nd and 3rd John, very, very similar. This is what Guy Wood says. Both are glimpses into the early church affairs, not characteristics of, of the lengthier and more profound epistles, both also reveal, however, that not all was harmonious, even in the apostolic age. Sinful human nature, even in its darkest forms, bled into those churches just like now. So I say that to say that both of these epistles are very similar, but also very relevant for us, coming off the heels of the study in Second John. However, 3 John is different, and it is unique on its own. Uh, this one was not intended originally for public reading, and it's the absolute most personal of John's writings. It's the most personal of his writings. My wife and I, we were in different states before we were married, and whether it was an email or a letter, I would obviously write much differently to her than if I were writing a paper for, say, work or for school. And those would be treasured in, in a much different category as well. In light of that, Zane Hodges, he says that Third John, our passage today, is a precious fragment of early Christian correspondence. I like that, a precious fragment of early Christian correspondence. And that's exactly what it is and what we get to kind of get a sneak peek into as we uh, examine this letter. Again, it's very personal. There are specific names, unlike the other, 1 John and 2 John. There are specific names here, real people, real places, real events, and real examples to us. John is not writing a theological treatise to be shared and taught. It's rather a letter handed to a courier, delivered to a specific man. And we also learn from this short 13 to 15 verses uh, of some of the events that unfolded leading up to his writing and what motivated him to, to do so. 
And lastly, I think having spent the weeks that we did dissecting 1 John, getting to know the apostle himself better, and of course his themes that cycle through in and out, I think it gives us an advantage too as we read this, this book um, to be able to pull through and reference from 1 John, if not specifically with what you have learned from his teaching, and it's now familiar to us, I trust. So as far as approach, I am just going to break it into a few sections. I'm going to read, <clears throat> we will read together and then I'll pause and we'll spend time on each of these three names. For each person, they are an example to us. And the takeaway, the application, so to speak, that I ask of us, that I ask of myself, is that we see how we resemble these people. They're examples to us, both good and bad, and there's a warning here. Do we resemble the bad example? Do we resemble these good examples? Also in our approach, there's a few asides that I'll jump to, kind of as tangents, but they're biblical principles tucked away, and we'll be brief on those, but very relevant to us. So that's our approach. We will, we will read every, every verse. <clears throat> so, questions before I begin? As far as the backdrop, let me set the stage, however, if I can, right before we read, because I think it will be helpful to get a little bit of an understanding of what's going on in the background, and it'll unfold more, obviously, with the verses. But John, as he is away from the specific church that's receiving this, from the man who is receiving this in his church. John, he's away. He sent men to visit the church. They are brethren. They are missionaries. They are traveling preachers. And he also sent with them a message, a letter, um, either through them or not long after, that was also sent to this church the Ephesian church. So men have gone out from John to this place. He's also sent a message. They have since returned to John with news. Make sense? That's our backdrop before we dive in. Example number one for us. This is verses one through eight. And our man is Gaius. So I'm going to read uh, verses one through four specifically. The elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So right away, we simply have a greeting from John to a man named Gaius. And who is this man? Well, first off, it's a very, very common name. It's not a standout or unique name. It's found, uh, uh, other men named this are referenced in Scripture. So a very common name, and most people believe that the reference to Gaius is limited. This specific man is limited right here in Scripture. In third John. And we know already that John and him know each other. They know each other very well. 
They're not only acquainted, they are clear close. And you notice already that John refers to him as beloved. He refers to him as beloved four times in this book. You could say he refers to him as dear friend, Gaius. Verses 1, 2, 5, and 11, he does this. Some say that this man, that John actually led him to Christ, and it's certainly a possibility. Um, they, they would look to verse 4 and some of the language there where the emphasis is on the word my, where John's saying, my children, you're mine. So there might have been, uh, it could have been true that John led this man personally to the Lord. But he is beloved. Those that are in Christ are beloved. And John reminds him of that here and personally uh, reaches out to him in a greeting. This man's prominent in the church. He might have been in a leadership capacity, if you think elder deacon type role. Um, He's likely an established man, established meaning mature and probably influential. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Some believe that just the subtle references that we'll look at here in a minute of economic blessing, that he has some financial stability as a strong possibility, or the fact that he's established enough with credibility or um, stature and uh, presentation that he can demonstrate hospitality and combat some of the posturing and troubles that are happening, which is why he's receiving this letter in the first place, to be commended for hospitality and also to address some issues that are going on. So he's, he's, he's an influential man, an established man. Don't want to make too much of that, but we can safely say that he's prominent in the church. That's probably the best word, prominent. So also notice, just in our first verses already, the word truth is repeated. It's repeated early and it's repeated often, which is what we'd expect from our man, John. And this is really our primary theme, that of walking in truth. Walking in truth is the primary theme. If there's one thing to take away from this morning, it would be that, to be commended to walk in truth. Verse 1, the elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. The elder, the elder. From weeks past, you know this already. Aged, apostle, leader, defender of truth, man whom Jesus loved. We know this man, he just needs to say the elder. And it's a typical greeting. We don't want to make too much of it. It's pretty straightforward how you would normally introduce yourself at the early part of your letter. He would name uh, himself as the sender. It's a typical greeting. But that phrase, in truth, whom I love in truth, it's appropriate. That's kind of general, right? It's appropriate for us to even say that that means in Christ. In truth is to be equated with in Christ. Not only that, but faith in him as the embodiment of truth. So he affirms the truth about Christ. There is communion here in love between these men so far as it is aligned with faith in who Jesus says he is from the scripture. And really, it's not unlike any other greeting. It's not unlike the greeting that we see in 2 John. Verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health 
as it goes well with your soul. Again, the repetition of the word beloved in so few verses already adds emphasis to how much John cared for this son in the faith. Followed again by a very typical greeting of well wishes. Wishing you well. But I think there's a little bit more that we can, we can learn from this greeting, this salutation. He, he prayed that he would prosper that it would go well with him. And that idea could be financial. It could be that he would be prospering economically, that he would be blessed materially. In verse 6, if you skip ahead, he says, you will do well uh, to send them. So the, the idea of doing well, you will do well. This could be also the fact that you'll benefit from physical health. It could be that he's free from illness already. It's a very normal greeting. <clears throat> but it could be that maybe he was ailing. It's not entirely critical, but here is the key that I don't want us to miss, just even in a greeting, is that to the extent it lessens any restrictions to serve the Lord and the church, so be it. John's just saying, whatever it takes for you to serve the Lord and the church, health, economics, money, whatever that is, so be it. And the key here is that as well as with your soul. This was of superior importance to John. And it's right in line with the pastoral heart. It's right in line with that. There's a lot to be drawn from this. Quickly, we should be reminded that the Bible, the law... The wisdom books, they, they do address, the Bible addresses health, it, it addresses money, and God cares about these things. But this greeting quickly points to what John valued most, and it reminds us what we should value most from uh, biblical principles of Scripture, and that is this. A healthy soul is more important than a healthy body. A healthy soul is more important than a healthy 401k. Guy Wood says about Gaius, having put first things first, having focused on the right things, it was entirely in order that Gaius have health and prosperity. We should never subordinate the material to the spiritual and let the world gain precedence in our lives. Does that make sense? Is that helpful to us? Good reminders? Verse 3. For I rejoiced, John is saying, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Again, brothers, these are the men that John had sent out previously to the church. They are making their way back to John with feedback, with a message. And, and the language here depicts that this feedback is happening repeatedly. I like to think that maybe they started caravanning and split off and a few guys came with a message. Maybe a couple others came later with the exact same message. It's ongoing. And they're saying what? They're saying that Gaius, he is walking in truth. That is the testimony about him. And another way of saying this for us, simply put, he is living out Christ-likeness. This is, this is thumbs up. And the elder, John confesses here that there is nothing better for him than to hear this. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
He doesn't say, hear me, I have no greater joy that my children hear the truth. He didn't say that. He didn't say that I have no greater joy that they know the truth. He didn't say I have no greater joy that they teach the truth. John gets fired up because they walk in truth, not just head knowledge. No, no, no. And again, from 1 John, pulling through this idea of the pattern of one's life, the continual flavor of one's Christian walk, their life. That's what's most important to John. And he affirms that here. So easy for us, so easy for me to have head knowledge only. Am I walking in truth? Here is the pastoral heart. He's wanting faith and good works to be evident in those who he teaches and who he leads in truth. This is the pastoral heart. I'd like to read three verses for us. You don't have to turn there. Just very quickly. Here are some verses that are good for us to hear in light of this. Hebrews 13.5. Us as a body, a church. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls and those who will have to give an account, as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. 1 Thessalonians 5.12. We ask you, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The other side of the coin here, James 1.22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Not a, and then it continues later, not a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in his doing. Helpful verses for us to think in terms of who is leading us and how we respond to, tr- uh, to truth. Head knowledge versus living it out. But we have a good report back to John. He is living it out. And how? How is he reading it on? Or I should say, how is he uh, living it out? Verse 5, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way and journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I really like the King James Version of verse 5. It's almost laughable to me. Beloved, here I'm going I'm to read it. Maybe you have it. Beloved, thou doest faithfully whatsoever thou doest to the brethren and to strangers. John's almost saying, I'm not sure what you're doing, keep it up. Whatever it is that you're doing whatsoever if you're doing keep it up a primary theme is walking in truth a close second would be hospitality let's think of hospitality just christian love in action maybe it was maybe it was as simple as letting these men have his good coffee mug maybe it was as little as that right but it's so much more. And, if, and I think if we remember what travel entailed at that time and era, we start to get a better understanding of this word hospitality. So it's important that we get 
ourselves in the mindset here of that time. What did it take to sojourn? What did it take to travel and journey? Well, it was significant. We know it was uncomfortable and potentially dangerous. Think about Paul in 2 Corinthians when he lists all of his personal sufferings. A lot of those are directly involved, uh, involving the reality of travel at that time and commuting. Daniel Aiken says, This is lodging, food, money, encouragement, prayer, standing with them, though they are strangers. The last part changes it. Lodging, money, food, encouragement, and prayer, and standing with them, though they're strangers. Hospitality was a necessity and a duty. Even in pagan cultures, it was highly esteemed. The Old Testament law codified how to protect strangers, protect people that traveled through. And how much more of a Christian obligation is that? You know, practical expression of love. Peter commands, so, without complaint. Hebrews reminds us not to neglect it. You might be actually entertaining angels. That's a wild thought. Elder qualifications, 1 Timothy and Titus, include hospitality. And it's magnified here also because churches met where in the early century? Their homes, right? MacArthur points out, the reality below this duty is love for and obedience to the truth. Jesus himself taught a parable to us that illustrated this hospitality in real-world terms. Both for the readers, or the listeners at the time, and for us as readers. It was in Luke chapter 10. If you remember, there's a man, probably a Jew, traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he fell upon robbers. But who came? The Samaritan, right? As he journeyed, the Samaritan, that is, he journeyed, he had compassion, and he used his resources to care for him, bandage him, invested in taking care of him above and beyond, and checking on him later. And this is in comparison to those that would likely be those that would act as such that did not, right, A pastor, as passers-by. Jesus says, who is your neighbor here? And so the Samaritan is a perfect illustration of this, especially in light of traveling, <clears throat> but let's not forget this too, that Jesus, he himself, he's the ultimate example here of self-denial, self-sacrifice, and perfect love in action because of his sinless death, death on the cross for us. This is one of those things where First John talks about love so much that I'm glad I get to read this letter now and kind of see it in action, practically, so we can put some meat on the bones. Verse 6, these men, brethren, missionaries, preachers, again, they gave testimony of Gaius' love. The idea that Paul, I'm sorry, that John says, you will do well to send them on their way. Sending them on their way, that's partly an obligation for him to go part of the journey and to still continue funding it or providing provision for them at their cost. So it's significant for him to charge them, charge Gaius to send them on their way. Let's keep moving. Now I read verses 7 through 8. Let me do it again. For they have gone out for the sake of the name 
accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Here we have three principles for us as church members today to help those who are called in this ministry. First one, well, it's all for the sake of the name. What name is that? What name are they bearing? These people who are called. It's the name of Christ. And with that, all his glory and all of his glory to be able to spread salvation. This is a worthy, worthy calling. A lofty calling, a high calling. Second, we need to help fund it. There's not going to be support from unbelievers. And if doing so, if, if these people are going directly to the world in a way to, to rely on them, then they're... They could be taking advantage. They could be seeking material only. They could be the hucksters that are defined in the scripture. So, I mean, logically, believers, it's their message. So us as believers need to be the ones through tithes, through donations, etc. Or else no one will. That's pretty logical. It's for the sake of the name, the name of Christ. We need to help fund it. We need to help make it happen. And three, we need to team up and participate as co-workers. And this is really a privilege to do so. Let's team up. Let's participate. Because ultimately, we are co-workers, fellow workers for the truth. It's interesting here, too, if we juxtapose this with Second John. You know, Second John cautioned us not to be supporting, not to be welcoming or aligning ourselves, not just opening the door, but, but aligning ourselves in full with what is taught from false teachers. So there we have the no, and here we have the Yes. Um, by contrast to that warning, here we have an admonition to support workers, workers for the truth. You with me? All right. Gaius is a positive example, and what an example he is to us. I love Daniel Aiken's uh, summary. He, he boils it right down. Here it is. He lived, Gaius lived spiritually, he walked truthfully, he served faithfully and he ministered generously. That's a nice, just, you know, summary for us. Lived spiritually, walked truthfully, served faithfully, ministered generously. Said another way, there's no contradiction in his profession or his talk and his practice and his walk. So we have to ask ourselves, how do I align to this? Where do you align to this? <clears throat> if there were eight brief verses to describe you and and give a testimony of who you are. How would you line up? How would I line up with this? Does our walk match our talk? What about PBC? Let's take it a step further corporately. How do we increase in hospitality? For those in our body or those who are outside who are strangers to us, How do we increase in honoring and supporting those who are called pastors, elders, missionaries? Whatever the capacity might be, we we get to respond in today's world in light of this this, uh, small letter. Okay, example two, diatrophies. Diatrophies, this is uh, verses 9 through 10. And in two verses, well, let me read them. I have written something to the church, 
But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So in just two verses, we have a radical shift. We have a major change, major contrast. Just as in verse 6, these men who came back to John gave a positive report about Gaius. They give a negative report here about this man. And this man whose name is solidified in the Bible for us as a negative example, a negative warning. Who's this man? Well, unlike Gaius, he has a very uncommon name. It means nourished by Zeus, which I think there's a little bit of irony there. Likely, we don't know for sure, but likely could have been from a very noble family which might have cultivated this attitude, this pervasive me-first attitude. Verse 1, have written to the church. I, John, have written to the church. Remember, he sent men and he also sent a message or a letter which is lost to us. It wasn't First John, it wasn't Second John. It was something else that he had written. It could have been instructions to accept the teaching of these men. It could have been uh, another apostolic charge. It could have been instructions on hospitality. We don't know. And it was probably accompanied by these brethren, these missionaries that were sent. However, what is implied here is that this man probably stepped in somehow and stopped it, intercepted it, destroyed it. Who knows? But more importantly, the focus here is in the second point, and that is he likes to be first. That's the crux of the matter here of this man. That's the, that's the focus. Selfish, self-centered, and the wording is such, much like walking in truth, the wording here is such that it is the constant pattern of this man's life. <clears throat> we see, too, that he usurps John's authority. Question, how blind do you have to be when you deny the Apostle John? How do you get there? It's not overnight. It's said here that Diotrephes, his desire for power and self-glory led to rejecting authority of Christ, which is mediated, which is delivered, spirit-infused, by the hand of John. We see this today. We see it today in our society, and, and it's purveyors of modern Christianity that elevate their message on par or maybe above Scripture. pride is the main issue at hand and interestingly enough it's not doctrinal this is not a doctrinal disagreement this is pride that's the main issue at hand here and I love that 1 John it it gives us such a great filter in chapter 2 15 through 17 of which we can funnel all sin through lust the eyes lust the flesh boastful pride of life that encapsulates it all and further we need to remind ourselves who is the head of the church here it's Jesus Christ not Pope, Bishop, Evangelist, Elders Jesus is the head of his church 
this is a very helpful progression. I think of James, the progression in James, and also areas of uh, Psalms and Proverbs. But this is a progression that John MacArthur lays out from Third John. He says, pride here, it leads you to forget God, and then it leads you to become unfaithful, and then it leads you to be ungrateful, and then it ends up in disgrace. We forget God, we're unfaithful, act ungratefully, and then we end up disgracing or becoming abomination. Proverbs 16.5, Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. That stings. And that stings because it's in me and it's in you. This is what the Lord hates. There's so many examples in Scripture. Uh, it, was an, it was humbling to read them, a lot of what these commentators point to. I'll choose two. One in the Old Testament, Nebuchadnezzar, looking out on his kingdom, taking in all the glory, and as prophesied, refuses to give glory to God, and his mind's turned to that of an animal until he recognizes who God is. Immediately. In the New Testament, Herod Agrippa, uh, early acts speaking in front of people they are lauding him with praise saying that he has the voice of a god he appears as that of a god he likes that and it says specifically that an angel struck him because he would not give god the glory and a couple verses later he's eaten by worms so this is a big deal this man diotrephes is the example of a walk rooted in pride and that's it's here for us as a warning. What's more on top of that? Read verse 10 again. Not content with that, he refuses. I'm sorry, he's talking wicked nonsense. He refuses to welcome the brothers and he stops anybody who, who does. Simply put, he's, there's slander, there's denying hospitality, which is the antithesis of what we see in Gaius. Denying hospitality of the man who came, probably because they were either encroaching on his uh, his agenda, making him uncomfortable, maybe calling him out. He was dominating others, and John will address it. <laughs> if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, and I let my mind wander here. I I would love to know the ratio of you know his thunder. And his love, Christ-like love. He, I feel like he would be dipping a little bit heavy into his uh, thunder reservoir, as his nickname would imply. But as an older man, probably more love than anything. Gaius, a positive example. Diotrephes, a negative example. Listen to these words. This is Daniel Aiken again. It may be a pastor. might be a worship leader. Might be a student minister, might be a deacon, prominent layman, powerful, influential family. We do not know who Diotrephes was. We do know he was driven by prideful ambition. The Cripple Gate, that's an online resource of contributors, Bible contributors. And listen to these 10 ways to diagnose 
the spirit of Diotrephes. It's developed directly from our text here, these, these short verses. And this is kind of our application in this example number two. Ask yourselves, is any of this true in your life as a warning? Here it is. I'll move quickly. Lust for recognition thinks they are superior to other believers, uses church ministry to gain recognition, is unteachable to godly people in his life who challenge pride, is blind and self-deceived, is arrogantly unsuspicious of self, must be called out publicly, slanders biblically qualified and affirmed leaders who confront sin, will have accompanying sins, sees other sound leaders and believers as obstacles to his prominence. It's a bad list. And on that note, we'll go to example three. We have an example sandwich. We go from positive to negative, and thankfully, back to positive. We won't have as much time on this one, which is okay. Instead of this, Gaius, instead of this, readers, let's look at 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Well, whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. How can John be so dogmatic with these black and white statements? How can he be so emphatic? Well, again, as was unfolded for us in 1 John, this is the pattern of one's life, right? This is not someone who displays arrogance in and of itself. This is one who is arrogant. This is one who cannot know God because of a pattern of sin. <clears throat> Bold? Yes. But we know that John deals in contrast. But he also, he also shifts. He uses this verse 3 to, as a transition to introduce another man for us, and that's the man Demetrius. And we can infer that he is one who is doing good. Nothing else is really known. Some feel he was the person actually handling the letter to this uh, letter to Gaius. Some people think very strongly that it's, it's uh, Demetrius doing that. But I just simply love the brevity. There's not a ton here. It's a short book to begin with, and he only gets a few words in, but I love the brevity. This man's summarized by good testimony in the whole region, and of those, <clears throat> he's, known as conform, he, he's known as one who conforms to the truth, and that was public witness. It could be said, simply put, Hey, you, be like that guy. That's all I can tell you. And that was enough. That was enough. Demetrius, just quickly, a positive example. One who uh, conforms to truth, known by everybody who knows him, and it's public. What an example he is to us. Final closings of our book Let's read 13 and 14. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. So this really mirrors Second uh, John and how he exits. It's very straightforward. It's not hard for us to understand. He's simply saying, I got so much more to say to you. And even in the 80s and 90s, 
however old he is, he's looking forward to personal pastoral interaction. He's not held up. He's looking forward to being with these people. Pastoral love. And peace be to you. We hear that a lot, but we can't skip over that word peace. The emphasis here, peace. That's peace among this hurting congregation, this torn congregation. And lastly, I like it. John and Gaius, they have mutual friends. And these friends are probably weighing in and just saying, hey, tell him I said hi. Tell him I said hi. Tell him I love him. They're getting in, you know, their salutations as well. So there's greetings both ways. And all, all our takeaway is there is that there's mutual friends, not just limited to these two, but they have a sphere of people that embody their church. <clears throat> I'd like to c- close. We got plenty of time, a little early. So... I want to close with reading Guy Woods. Again, he's probably the person I leaned on the most for 3 John. And uh, he takes these descriptions of these three men and he just lays it out for us in a very consolidated way. And we just have to ask ourselves, where do we fall? How should we be warned this morning with such a clear negative example? How should we change to be more like these positive examples? Here's Guy Woods. Three persons dealt with. Gaius, the dependable disciple, liberal, generous, hospitable, devoted. Diotrephes, a church boss, dominating, boastful, proud. Demetrius, commended by all, humble, kindly, worthy. These are the representative types of people in the church today. We bow our, let's bow our heads and I'll close our time and we'll be done after I pray <clears throat> for us. Lord, I am a proud person. It, is, it resides in us. May we take this to heart. May we be in a state of self-examination right now. Thank you for these examples to us. Thank you for your scripture, Lord. May we be people who are hospitable. May we be people who walk in truth. May we look at opportunities to practice what it is we know is true. May we demonstrate Christ-likeness as Christians. And uh, may we seek ways to, to, to take that love to others, even those that we might not know. May we reflect you. May we walk in truth. May we glorify you as our Father in all that we do. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen.